world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and best-selling author. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of Inspire Us. I am your host, Paul Nadeau. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Hannock. Mark dedicated his life from an early age to opening minds and creating change. Now, he regularly speaks to diverse audiences about mental health, mental illness, suicide, advocacy, recovery, and hope. Mark's TED Talk on suicide is among the most watched in the world, with over 6.5 million Views. His keynotes, panels, workshops, and media appearances aim to break the stigma that prevents people from speaking openly about their mental health. Mark believes that freedom is found in overcoming the barriers that stigma, disempowerment, and disconnection build. Mark has seen countless times, personally and professionally, that each and every person has the potential to unlock their most true and hopeful self, regardless of of how dark it may seem. His story is powerful. This episode is powerful and it deals with mental illness and mental wellness and steps that we can take to make ourselves feel better during these difficult times. I'm certain that you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. And now here's Mark. Hey Mark, welcome to Inspire Us. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Well, you know what? I'm looking forward to talking to you. You have such a, an incredible background and one that in today's world, we are living in unprecedented times where suicide is on the rise, uncertainty is on the rise, people are anxious, people are depressed. There's so much going on in the world. So to have someone like yourself who has gone through uh, anxiety, depression, and was on the verge of suicide, your story is one of resilience and success. And it is one that needs to be heard, especially today. So Mark, tell me how, how this all started for you as a young man and take us through your story, man. You know, it's funny to hear you introduce me that way because I'm the type of person who's never really considered himself as successful. If I really objectively look at my life, of course, I've been not only blessed with many gifts, but I've also worked very hard uh, to create the life that I always wanted for myself. That said, I think, and, and maybe you're similar, or a lot of people who, who do this kind of work are similar, you're never quite satisfied <laughs> with things as they are. You're always striving for more, for better. And I think that mindset, that whether it's a growth mindset or a restless mindset, if there's any difference at all, I'm not sure, that started for me from a very young age. I was first started experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety. Uh, as young as probably about eight years old, maybe even earlier, I just didn't really, I, I mean, I didn't know what to call it when I was eight either, but really some of the precursor events and emotions probably happened a lot, a lot earlier than that. And left unchecked, both by me and those around me, I started becoming uh, suicidal at about 10, and I had my first suicide attempt at 12 years old. Now, when that happened and I went into hospital, I, I pulled my medical records and the nurse noted that my mother said, we didn't see it coming, even though I felt it coming for so long. You had felt it at that age. Can you describe what it was that you were feeling 
at such a young, tender age, what were you experiencing at the time? So I, I try to describe it to people, as I did in my uh, TEDx talk several years ago, as a feeling of collapse. And, and I think that that, that idea of, of feeling trapped or collapsing, the, it's become a bit of a euphemism of sorts of feeling trapped. But I think there's actually something a lot deeper happening there, psychologically, neurologically, and otherwise. It's this idea that I was dealing with depression and anxiety anyway, these two almost opposing forces inside me, this conflict inside me, where I felt incredibly uh, sad because of the depression. I felt down all the time. I felt lethargic. So it was physically exhausting, but mentally exhausting as well. Depression, its, its core function is to make you feel hopeless and helpless. But then also because I had an anxiety disorder, especially uh, focused on social situations, it meant that I, was, I couldn't ask for help. Now there's, there's some other stuff packed into that piece too, but I was incredibly anxious about talking to people, uh, about saying what I was feeling. Uh, so they were keeping, both of those two conflicting factors were keeping me trapped inside this, this place where I started to feel like I had no other options, that I needed to escape. So that's where my suicidality came from, was feeling collapsed in this tight little perceptual space where I was hopeless, I was helpless, I was tired all the time, I was suffering, and it felt like a way out. Uh, and now, since then, having talked to thousands of people who have experienced similar suicidal feelings, it turns out that that's really common, that people don't want to kill themselves, generally speaking, just for the sake of dying. Uh, they want to do it because they can't live however they're living anymore. And that's exactly how I felt. My father committed suicide. I think he was 51 years of age when he did. And I could see how he spiraled down into such a depression. And I think that, that was his only way out that he thought he had. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the, in the 70s. Uh, so at a time where actually suicide was against the law to commit. And I know that you talk about this in your wonderful TED Talk. And folks, if you, most of you listening have probably heard this man's TED Talk. It's one of the most uh, listened to and viewed on uh, YouTube. And it's called Why We Need to Talk About Suicide. And it's got more than 6.6 .6 million views. And rightfully so. Let me ask you this, Mark. When you experienced this darkness and feeling this hopelessness at a young age, was your family supportive? Were you, was your family life a good one? Were you in an environment that was angry or were you in a, a good place? You know, as, uh, through the, the process of writing my first book, which will be out in January, uh, So-Called Normal, I had a lot of conversations with my family, my sister especially, uh, who I'm particularly close with, but also my brother and, and extended family members as well. And my sister said it to me, said to me at one point after one of our many, many conversations, you know, why do you keep saying all this stuff about trauma? This is just the way things were. And it was such a profound moment for me because I think that the environment that you in that you're in, especially that you're growing up in, socially and otherwise, it's so much bigger than just you in an interaction with the world. It was normal for us. Now, it turned out when I actually took a step back and was through the writing process of the book, I realized, oh, the stuff that we lived through actually isn't all that normal. That Not everybody uh, grows up, for example, in a household surrounded by such toxic masculinity and fear all the time at the hands of my stepfather that we would be replaced, that we, we would be kicked out, potentially even hurt, that our feelings weren't valid. 
that, that I wasn't allowed to cry as a little boy because I had to be, in his words, a real little man. That would, from, a, from seven years old, I had to make sure that I was a man. And, and I think that for me, in addition to my depression and anxiety, which on their own were, were collapsing me inside my own head, whenever I did try to reach out, I learned this through writing the book too, uh, even in seemingly uh, simple instances, you know, I was struggling uh, at school, for example, which should have been a, a, a red flag on its own that maybe something else was going on. That tends to be when how kids manifest mental health difficulties, they struggle at school. But I would be, I would reach out for help and then I'd be met with some sort of rejection or somebody would make fun of me or there just wouldn't be help available because people didn't know how to help. And I, I discovered that the sum total of that was a conditioning effect. I've reached out for help X number of times. Every time I did so, I was either shut down or rejected or invalidated, or in some cases even hurt. This happened when I was uh, sexually assaulted, when I was molested, when I was uh, a young boy. Uh, I had asked somebody for help, uh, and then they ended up using that information against me to manipulate me. So this was a piece of feedback that I received, a piece of negative feedback that I received uh, repeatedly from a young age that it's not okay to either express emotion uh, or to ask uh, for help that you might regret it. I internalized that, I think, because of my surroundings, because of my environment. Yeah, and you've touched on so many important issues that need to be discussed and examined further. Your environment, uh, that dominant uh, stepfather of yours, and, and uh, the fact that a lot of young boys are being told to become men, uh, some version of, of man, you don't cry, you don't express your feelings. And that filters into their futures and affects the way that, that they have tender relationships with other people. What is it to become a man? There's so much pressure being put on, on young men, and I'm certain on young women, to be a certain way, not to be yourself, not to express yourself. That needs to change. Your normal, your so-called normal life way back when, again, we become conditioned and we learn to become helpless. Uh, it, it's that learned helplessness mm -hmm. environment uh, that we just, this is our life. It, it's like, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm in this shocking environment, but everybody is, aren't they? Just every, the, everybody's life. And this, this was such a, a, a key thing growing up. You know, I grew up in Cape Breton, uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, small town kind of mentality, the way I think it, uh, of it. And I don't think this is unique to Cape Breton or Nova Scotia or the Maritimes. I think this is probably common in a lot of small towns where if you step outside the norm, whatever that's socially, uh, ar largely arbitrarily decided uh, social norm is, uh, you're, you're not part of the club anymore. You're not, you're not on the in crowd. And when you have social anxiety disorder, when you're a teenager, even if you don't have a mental illness of any kind, you're one top desire is to fit in, to be accepted uh, by the community around you. So as a young kid, when I started behaving strangely, when I started saying things that made people uncomfortable, when I didn't fit with my environment, I felt like I was being rejected and isolated further, which of course compounded my, my struggle. It's kind of an old saying, we, we all grew up a Newfoundland derivative of Irish Catholic. And there's an idea in Irish Catholicism, I think it's Irish Catholicism anyway, or at least in Cape Breton, that life is hard. Life is hard for everybody. It builds character. It builds. 
but that wasn't helpful to me as a young boy when I couldn't see that that broader perspective that sure, maybe I'll learn something from this 20 years down the road. But when I'm only 12 years old to begin with, or 12, 13 years old, I didn't have that broader view at the time. So that just wasn't meeting my needs where I was in my life at that time. Right. And it's so true. We have a need to be heard, to be seen. And we see it all over social media. People have a real desire. Hey, look at me. I need you to like me. I need you to like this photograph. My life is falling apart, but as long as I know that somebody sees me and hears me, it's really important. So for a young man your age, way back when, being rejected, yeah, and already suffering from anxiety and depression, that must have been so overwhelming for you that another person who's rejected you or another group who's rejected you, what can we tell young people right now? This time, if they're going through what you were going through, what was it that helped you get by? You know, it's funny, just before we started uh, our conversation here, I was just scrolling through Facebook and I came across one of those uh, silly little memes that I always like to, to share both on my, you know, my fan page and my personal account. Uh, and it said, uh, why, are you, why do you want everybody to like you? You don't even like everybody. <laughs> and I thought this was exactly what I was experiencing. So it's, it's, it's an interesting confluence that you bring this up because I wanted people to like me, I think, or at least to not disregard me, to validate me, who weren't particularly nice to me, who, who wouldn't be my friends today. So why would I want the, these pe- to be in relationships with these people uh, who aren't particularly nice to me and, and who, who probably don't deserve a place in my life? And I think that when you're a teenager, because you want to be accepted, you want to be part of a group, you're finding yourself, uh, you do, I think, yearn for or, or crave connection with people uh, who might not actually be the best people for you, who might not be serving your needs. But, you know, I think you figure that out. You figure that out over time, the types of people who your tribe are, the types of people who will uh, honor and appreciate the things that you honor and appreciate. And that really only comes with time and experience and the willingness to let relationships fail, the willingness to fail in projects. You know, I I do a lot of public work right now and it's always surreal for me uh, when people think that everything is always successful, that everything always just works out. No, you only see the successes. There's 10, 10, 20, or 100 failures behind the scenes of stuff that you never saw because I don't share it, you know? So so I think that adolescents, though, and and kids, they don't realize that. They think that they can be the stuff that they see around them, and they often, we often, don't realize the work and the failure that often goes into that. So what I would suggest to, to any young person or anybody of any age is realize when you look at somebody, when you look at a situation, whether it's a person or a thing that you want to be or do, or especially if it's a struggle in your life that you're facing, that this moment isn't the only moment. There will be moments after this. There have been an entire lifetime of moments before this, that there's an entire broader context around this, even especially when you're looking at a situation which you think is absolutely intractable, that it will never get better when you fall into that trap of hopelessness and helplessness. Well, maybe this actually isn't as big of a deal as I think it is right now in this moment. Sure, it's all consuming now, but let's take a beat. Let's gain some distance from it. And maybe it'll actually work out okay in the end. Maybe, in fact, you could, your struggle will someday become your strength. 
So I think being able to zoom out and take that perspective, that was one of the, the most powerful and useful skills that I learned over time uh, that I think eventually was key to my recovery. And that, yeah, that is very important. We do live in moments and we put a lot too much pressure on ourselves to be liked, as you said, and sometimes by the wrong people. And we always think that people think a lot more about us than, we, than they actually do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when something happens, you think, oh, what are they going to think about me? Well, they thought about you for 30 seconds and then they dropped it because they went on to whatever else is happening in their life. So uh, young people, anybody who's thinking that uh, and putting far too much pressure on themselves, uh, thinking, what are they going to think about me? They're probably not thinking all that much unless they're truly connected to you and they care. Or they're very likely thinking about themselves, uh, (laughs) which is what we all ought to do is figure out what is good for me in this situation. And sometimes that means that it's going to conflict with what somebody else either thinks is good for themselves or what somebody else thinks is good for you. Uh, I think that another key um, piece of my recovery has been the development of my self-advocacy over the years. That, it, that realizing that my mental health is mine. I own my brain. My brain doesn't own me. Therefore, I can make decisions that are in my best interest. And if they don't work out okay, if they don't work out at all, if, if they backfire, that's fine. I can learn from that. But it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks in terms of your personal development, that that has to be something that comes from you. And Look, I, I, I have this conversation with parents, especially more than anybody else, where they want to fix their child, to simplify it, that their, their kid is having a really hard time. Or even if it's not their kid, even if it's their partner or a close friend who's struggling really badly right now. And sometimes they will refer or, or they'll, they'll want to look into involuntary treatments, for example, having somebody committed to a hospital. And while that serves a function in our treatment uh, system in mental health care, I think it's an overemphasized function because it actually doesn't work as well as we think it works, that that taught me that you can't just do change to people. You can't do recovery to people. There needs to be some pressure in order to motivate us to change, but you do recovery yourself. Uh, your, Your mental health problem is not your fault, but your recovery is your responsibility. There are things you can do, you're not powerless. And as soon as you realize that, no matter how small the steps are that you need to take, dragging yourself out of bed to get a shower or to feed yourself properly, that's a win. We need to be able to realize that we are not slaves to our brain. We are not powerless against our illness. That's such a profound concept and uh, thing to say because I have said it uh, also in my book is that in my childhood, I was uh, abused like yourself. I was physically, emotionally abused, locked in, in, uh, in trunks. Uh, it, it's quite a, a thing. I was waiting to be rescued uh, and I realized uh, that uh, rescue comes from within. Nobody's going to rescue you or they will help get you out of that dark hole. And that's why we need to open up more about uh, how we're feeling and what help we need. But truly, I I love what you said. It is really your responsibility to take control of your mental wellness and your mental health and move you forward. And I also want to make the point here too, you know, Barack Obama used to say all the time that you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps if you don't have any bootstraps with which to pull (laughs) yourself up. So I do not want to um, underplay the importance here of social social supports, uh, of others helping too. Uh, At the end of the day, as we say in psychotherapy, you have to do the work. Uh, And it's a it's a hard process. It's recovery is not 
all yoga and self-care and and uh, essential oils that that can be a part of it if it helps you to relax wonderful but it's not always easy it's not always comforting and and relaxing that part of it is really facing the challenges inside yourself that people are so afraid of their triggers we hear this all the time they're uh, particularly the triggers for negative emotions that they run from them well that's exactly the function of anxiety and anxiety disorders it's to avoid the things that make you uncomfortable in fact and you need to know your limits in this respect healthy limits but you need to lean into those things which make you uncomfortable that there's a reason that they make you uncomfortable that there's some unresolved pain there there's something there that's governing you where you've lost control over a piece of your mind or a piece of your life and potentially i want to add for very good reason there's this idea in dialectical behavior therapy which i love uh, about acceptance and change and within the context of acceptance it's important to emphasize that acceptance acceptance doesn't mean endorsement accepting something in yourself or accepting a reaction in yourself doesn't make it okay if you were abused accepting that you were abused doesn't get that abuser off the hook what it means is that it is what it is. It happened. You can't deny the fact that it happened anymore because the longer you do that, the more you're not dealing with it. It sucks that it happened, but now, it ha now that it has, you have to do something with it. Uh, and that's where I think we can both take the first step of uh, resolving the power that that trauma has had over us and how it governs our life, but then potentially getting, getting to the next step of post-traumatic growth and of doing something meaningful and interesting uh, with the difficult circumstances you've been dealt. I think another thing too is that to dwell on what has happened to you and to try to analyze why you were victimized, why you were assaulted, uh, sexually assaulted, you're spending far too much energy there when really you look at it for, as you said, for what it is, it happened, it was bad, but you have to say uh, just a few words, it's not my fault. What happened to me was not my fault. And to dwell in that past will rob you of the wonders of what you could be experiencing in the now. Well, and, and I think we also get stuck in loops when we do that too. Oh. You know, I've, I think everybody has met uh, the, the so-called victim of circumstance who every, every time they, they want to do something and, and legitimately could do something great with their life, it's, oh, but this happened to me, or but I didn't get this opportunity, or I'm not lucky like that person, or I don't have this or that. All of that might be true, <laughs> but there are still things we can do to get out of the cycle within which we find ourselves trapped. And yeah, and, and I like that. You're right. All, it, bad things happen to good people, and some people experience a heck of a lot more bad things than others. Mm -hmm. But what you touched on a little bit earlier, too, is that sometimes when things happen or when we fail or when we don't get what we want, it is only one thing. And if we try something else or if we change our circumstances, our environment, our toxic environment, whatever, our toxic friends, whatever, when we change that, we have new opportunities to create something new. And that is so important for people to recognize is that, yeah, Bad things are going to happen to us, but how we respond to it is what really is going to make the difference in our mental wealth, in our life, in our success. You know, I, I also want to make the point here, too, that as, as seemingly easy as it sounds to do something constructive for the hand you've been dealt, part of that is also recognizing when it's time to just leave space and to, and to allow for uncertainty. In fact, I think at ground zero of challenging emotions is developing that skill to just 
let it be, to let it exist, let yourself be uncomfortable, that's okay, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to run from the discomfort, you don't have to self-medicate, you don't have to do all these psychological backflips in order to rationalize or, or make it make sense or be hard on yourself that you should be doing something instructive with it, it can just be hard and that's okay. And what I think the benefit of that is that I had to teach myself or I had to learn, I think the hard way um, over time, that when I encountered difficulty, I might not know yet what's for. Now, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I think I have, I'm not a person of religion per se, but I think I do have a, a, a fairly deep uh, spirituality and faith life. And from that comes this idea that when I encounter adversity, I don't yet know what this is supposed to be teaching me, but I'm going to let it play out and see what happens. I'm going to see what the lesson is here later. And so many times that has worked out, that something has happened to me. And then maybe, maybe even 10 years later, uh, podcast episode or project or charity or there's something here that's so interesting it's material i think i learned that from writing the book and reading from reading other writers who said that everything that you experience in your life is potential material you might not know what to do with it yet but it could be useful later oh i totally agree with you there's something that i've written in one of my books and i said when i look back at some of the things that happened to me i actually look at it and say you know what that actually happened for me had it not been for my father's abuse of me, I would not have become a police officer. I would not have helped so many people. Things that have happened to me, I realize they actually happened for me. And writing the book was therapy for me. Writing the book was very therapeutic because I've suffered depression before. And at one point in my career, for several months, I was very depressed. But again, if you look at the things that have happened to you, you sometimes realize, no, man, that happened for me and such great things have happened as a result of it. Well, and part of it too is being gentle with yourself in recognizing uh, I feel really, really awful right now. And you know what? If you look at my circumstance, that's entirely okay. That's, that's understandable. So I'm just going to feel really awful right now. It'll pass, but this is a natural reaction uh, to my circumstances and, and you can give yourself permission to feel badly. Now, I think it's also important, and I remind them over the last decade or so, um, most people have probably heard the pithy <laughs> tagline that it's okay to be not okay. And I agree with that. It's perfectly fine to not be okay, to, to be having a hard time. But I think that when you've dealt with long-term depression in particular, uh, it's important to remind yourself that it's also okay to be okay that you can have good days. You don't have to look at them with narrow eyes and suspicion. I don't deserve this. Why am I so happy today? I don't, I, I shouldn't be happy with what's happened to me and, and with how I've always been before. Sometimes I think it's important to be able to hold your happy moments, your joyful moments, even just your neutral moments, and to thank them, to, to realize that, no, this is okay. I deserve a, an okay day as well, because then you start to realize that there's life outside of that difficulty. Yes, yeah, to be grateful for the uh, for the wonders that you do have and to to openly recognize that there are so many good things that are happening around you and that it's just not the bad things. There are a lot of things for us to be grateful for. And I think too that when we do have those bad times or we are feeling that anxiety and depression that we should be sharing our vulnerability with people and opening up because especially now, you know, where so many people are feeling the anxiety and they're depressed, you've lost their jobs, there's uncertainty. We're into a second wave, according to the government. What's going to happen? All this uncertainty. Now, 
more than ever in our recent history. We need to tell other people how we're feeling. We need to support one another. We were, we're not in this alone. I think part of the recovery or part of the cure is in being vulnerable. And people look at vulnerability as being a dark emotion. They associate it to that hopelessness and, and that loss and, and that regret. But vulnerability is actually the gateway to, to such beautiful experiences. And we need to take advantage of that. I think uh, especially creative experiences. You know, I, there's nothing, sometimes, especially if you're, you know, a bit of a perfectionist, uh, I, I'm talking about myself here, uh, if, if you're kind of type A and you really like to just get things done and, you know, sometimes stuff gets in the way of whatever project you have in mind and that sets you off course and you get upset. So in some ways, there's nothing worse than being vulnerable because you feel that you don't know what to do necessarily with whatever this stirring is happening inside of you. But 100% of the time, my creativity has flourished the most when I've been feeling vulnerable, when I've been able to say, oh, there's something, there's something there. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm feeling, whether it's emotional or, or unsettled or maybe a little bit irritated, whatever it is, there's some sort of volatility happening there. Let's listen to this. Let's pay attention to it and see where it's leading me. Uh, and then 100% of the, this is where the TED, TEDx talk came from. I was in an argument on uh, Wikipedia <laughs> in the back. So for those who don't know, Wikipedia is kind of a community generated or, or how it happens as an encyclopedia. All of the information is community generated. So there's back, there's back pages or talk pages where people discuss the content. And I was reading, I was working as a clinician at the time with 16 to 24 year old kids wanting to be the, the person that I needed when I was that age. And I was reading the page about suicide. And as I was reading through it, it kept saying language like successful suicide attempt, for example, or one of the most common ones, commit suicide. Now, mental health professionals try to steer people away from that kind of language because uh, crimes are committed uh, and suicide has, hasn't been a crime, like you noted, since the 70s, since the early 70s. And a successful suicide attempt that doesn't always sit well with suicide attempt survivors because they died. That's not a success, you know, or, or, or a suicide. Uh, and within, you know, a couple of hours, the, the crowds piled on and said, but that's not the common way of saying it. You know, everybody says commit suicide. It's not a big deal. Or everybody says a failed attempt. It's not a big deal. Right. But we're not talking about what everybody does. We talk about what's correct <laughs> and what's right. actually grammatically correct, what the science is saying and what experts are saying is correct. So I got in this whole, you know, couple of day long back and forth on the talk page around suicide. And, I, and my reaction to that was frustration. And then all of a sudden, a friend of mine uh, had posted, she was involved with the TEDx Toronto organizing committee. Uh, so she posted on Facebook a link to the community nominations for to nominate yourself or somebody else to be a speaker at this upcoming TEDx Toronto event. Now I had seen TED Talks, I think, like everybody else. So I thought I was, I was, I was a little animated because of this argument I was having on Wikipedia. So I clicked the link, I filled out the form and I said, I want to do a TED talk to, that educates people and puts more content out there into the world on why we don't say commit suicide uh, and why suicide isn't a crime. And why, you know, so I just kind of went off in this application. Uh, and then that triggered this whole process of me being invited to do this TEDx talk in which I share my own story. Uh, I say that suicide isn't a crime. I say, you know, I say all the stuff that I had been thinking about in this argument on Wikipedia. And the reason why I'm, I'm explaining this to you is because I didn't know at the time that that's where this would go. I just leaned into these stirrings inside me that this was a message that I really wanted to get out there. I didn't overthink of it. 
I didn't think I want to do a, TED, a TEDx talk that goes on to become one of the top 40 most watched in the world. It was that, no, I'm kind of pissed off right now because these people don't understand and I don't have many references to link to. Therefore, I'm going to create in the world what I need. And your venting, your message was so well received and rightfully so because people connected with what you had to say. You pointed out in your TED talk that one of the ways that we can help is by, uh, you know, or by stopping to say that people commit suicide. You're right. It is something that happens and it's not committed. You also said in your talk, suicide is a public health concern and not a criminal one. And 90% right. of the people who die by suicide have a, a diagnosable and treatable mental illness at the time of their death. And we know that treatment and psychotherapy medication can help. What would you say to people right now who are thinking about committing suicide, who are depressed, Mark? What messages would you give them? Uh, what can you tell us? Right, so I think that, and there are people who disagree with me on this point, but uh, on these points, but I am of the view firmly that every single suicide is preventable. If we can get access to the people who are uh, at high risk, which we know, and again, people dispute these statistics as well, but they're, they're, in my mind, fairly convincing that the vast majority of people who kill themselves are experiencing a mental health problem or illness. And it's, almost, it, it's usually depression uh, as, as part of that, or at least as part of the mix of illnesses. We know that many other, there's a variety of other uh, mental illnesses that are comorbid uh, that also have very high suicide rates. But it, which, that means to me, though, that if a huge portion of people who are dying by suicide have depression, we know how to treat depression. We've been, taught, we've been doing scientific research and clinical research on, on effective treatments for depression for decades, for, for you know, the better part of 50 years, maybe longer. But the problem is that people aren't getting access to those kinds of effective treatments. That's the first thing. They're not actually getting the help that they need. And also, they're not receiving the kind of messaging, the recovery-oriented messaging, which tells them that it's possible to recover. Instead, even now, even 10 plus years into this great wave of mental health awareness that we're experiencing, people are getting the message that your brain is broken, that it's, it's and it's coming from, epidemiologically, it's coming from an understandable place. People want to be absolved of responsibility for their illness. I think that's a noble mission. Your illness isn't your fault. Nobody's saying it's your fault that you've perhaps made choices that haven't been in your best uh, interest, that you have thinking patterns that aren't serving you or are keeping you stuck. That's not your fault, but we're not talking about fault. We're, we're talking about how we can make changes in your life, things that you can do, that you have power to do, that will potentially help you. So I think as a result of that running from fault or running from the idea that we don't want people to feel badly about something that is out of their control, we've tried to tell people that, that this isn't in their control. Their illnesses that they have no control over because it's just something that happened in their brain, that they were born this way, and that it was destined to happen. This is the natural offshoot of this kind of biological hyper-determinism that, that that person died by suicide because there was something wrong with their brain and it was bound to happen. We actually know in stigma research now for several years that that is not a constructive way to talk about suicide. Suicide is not inevitable. Because it happened doesn't mean it needed to happen. And loved ones of people who have died by suicide probably have the most difficulty with this idea because if it didn't have to happen, why did it? Well, because the system failed your person. The, that we're not organized as a healthcare system, as a society, 
to recognize the early signs and symptoms that we know are associated with depression and suicide. Kids not knowing how to name and label their emotions. That seems like a really, such a basic thing that people don't even make the connection to suicide prevention. But if you have a, as a very young kid, don't learn how to say, I'm feeling angry right now because you just don't talk that way in your household, that means that later on when you grow up, you're not able to recognize the, the emotion of anger inside you. If you can't recognize it, there's nothing you can do about it. You're a slave to that emotion because you don't even know what it is. You don't have a name for it. Mm. Um, that's a really basic skill that way downstream is related to suicide prevention. If you can't recognize what you're feeling, you can't deal with it. If you can't deal with it, you're going to try to escape it later. So I, I think that what people need to understand is that Suicide is preventable, that mental health problems and illnesses are not exclusively in your brain, even though we conclusively know there are correlates, uh, but that you can change your brain. There are treatments available that if a treatment does, that you try a treatment and it doesn't work, you try another one and it doesn't work, try another one and it doesn't work, there are more treatments available. There is a never ending supply of options. And that's the message we need people to know, especially with severe and persistent uh, mental illnesses that there are no shortage of options and routes out there to try, and we can keep trying them until we find something that sticks. And I love the fact that, yes, it is so important to label the emotion at whatever age. And we need to educate parents and our teachers and our coworkers. Everybody needs to become aware of the fact that it's all right to express your, how you're feeling. And it is not only all right, it is constructive and it can help you to do this and to share this. And one, one therapy may not work for you, but another may. Lao Tzu said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, but the idea is that you keep on moving forward. So once you start something, like it's important to try something new or take a new path, do something different. I encourage people to write in journals and to do some self-evaluation uh, so that they can work on the things that need to be worked on. And to open up, to look for help is, is okay. And I tell people all the time, now is a time that we should be sharing how we're feeling. You know, I mean, not only now, it's been this way forever, but now people need it so much more because we are seeing an increase in suicides. We are seeing an increase in, in domestic violence. We are seeing people who are giving up and becoming hopeless. And there, there are so many reasons we need to write, reach out to one another right now. And yeah, thank you for sharing sharing that, that is powerful. Well, I think a, a, core, a core piece of cognitive behavioral therapy is this idea that you shouldn't believe everything you think. Uh, we often fall into the trap of, because I thought it, it must be true. Well, says who? <laughs> we think <laughs> things all the time. The, you know, passing thoughts, weird thoughts, different, you know, just because a, a thought enters your mind doesn't mean it has to have any valence or any importance whatsoever. It's just a thought. And I think that's important for us to remember for a couple of reasons. Namely, just because everything seems really awful right now doesn't mean it actually is, that there's a number of cognitive biases of thought distortions that come into play that shape our thoughts for us uh, and present information to us. That's just the way the brain works. It presents information in ways that aren't always accurate for our interpretation. But I think the other piece of that is recognizing that just because I perceive the world in a certain way right now, it, that's informed by a number of factors. For example, so many times people have come to me and said, I can't continue to live. I've tried everything. I have depression. It's not treatable. I've tried everything. If you actually scratch even just one centimeter deeper into their story, you start to realize what 
everything means within their skewed perception, a, a term you know, with, that I use in the, in the TEDx talk, that our, our, our perception becomes shaped by our illness. The illness doesn't want to be found out. The illness is the hostage taker, and the hostage taker doesn't want to be caught, you know, to use your, your world. Uh, so, so I think when you actually scratch just a little bit deeper beneath that idea, I've tried everything, what you'll find out is that very often what I've found out, they've tried a bunch of different medications. Maybe they've tried four, five, six, seven medications. Actually, in some cases, I've talked to people and they've tried two or three medications and felt like they've tried everything. So that's a highly relative determination, but they've tried a bunch of medications and the psychiatrist couldn't figure out, quote unquote, what's wrong with them. Side note, there's nothing wrong with you. You're still a valuable person deserving of love uh, and recovery. But anyway, maybe they've tried a couple of therapists. Maybe they, they had a really negative interaction with a therapist who was not good at their job. And they don't realize, oh, maybe that person was just not a very good therapist. Because you take it personally. You're, you're feeling vulnerable. You think that everything is wrong with you. And this is how I felt as a young man, too, after seven hospitalizations. If all these very smart people can't help me, maybe I'm not helpable. Maybe it's my problem. There's something wrong with me. I'm just different. And maybe I don't deserve to live as a result because it will always be this way. That's the message we get from the healthcare system, from the, the, the system that was never built to help our mental health uh, in a proper way to begin with. So we need to realize that we may have had attempts at recovery that didn't quite pan out. We may have met lots of people along the way who weren't what we needed. That's okay. It doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who can't help you just because you've met other people who couldn't meet your needs. So that's why I always tell people there are uh, as many different types of psychotherapy as there are psychotherapists, because so much hinges on that relationship. Interview psychotherapists. If you want to go in for therapy, uh, that's great. Interview a few people, see who you click with, see what works, you know, somebody who can make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit pressured to change, but who doesn't make you feel small and that you feel like you can't talk to. Talk to your doctors and really make sure they're actually hearing you. When you say that those side effects are really awful and it makes you feel worse and maybe it's making you more suicidal, if your doctor doesn't take that seriously, then that's not a good doctor for you. You know, so there are ways that you can take charge of your health, of your well-being, and realize that you, you're doing this for you. And that if that means you need to reorganize the people you put into your life to help you, then you need to do that. And I, when, only until people realize that, that they'll still fall into that trap if they don't realize that, of thinking that they're unhelpable, of thinking that they've tried everything. Because I guarantee you they haven't. Yes, yes. And what you're talking about really is about taking control of your life. You are responsible to take control. There's, it's your life. Nobody's going to live it for you. And how you enjoy it is entirely a choice that you make. And yes, what you were talking about a little earlier about uh, choosing your therapist and, and such reminded me of that wonderful movie with Robin Williams, Good Will Hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a scene in there just absolutely beautiful but yes it is it is important to to do that to, to open up and talk to people and also if one therapist is not working for you move on to another well and on that not working piece you know sometimes people think that therapy either isn't working uh, because it makes you feel worse that's actually 
kind of expected. And I think most psychotherapists, most good psychotherapists would tell you this, that you're going to come into psychotherapy and it's going to dig up a lot of stuff for you. You might actually really not feel very good for a little while. Or you might have interactions where you're projecting all kinds of stuff onto your therapist. Uh, and, and you start to think that that person just really isn't a good person or they're mean to me or they're this or that. And that might be true. So, you know, be open to that point. They might be not very nice to you, but also be open to the fact that if you're thinking about terminating therapy or you think that a therapist isn't right for you, well, maybe they actually are right for me and they're pushing me and making me uncomfortable in a way that's, that's good. So have that conversation with your therapist and then gauge it by there. You'll know in your gut, I think, that if this is a productive discomfort uh, or if it's just too much and it's not right for you. I think that's, a, that's kind of a hard thing to, to figure out, but I think it's a conversation worth having both with yourself and with your therapist, that it's supposed to be hard, but it's not supposed to be unreasonably painful, I think. You have to process the emotions, but you can't, it's not helpful to be re-traumatized either. I agree. It's such valuable information here, Mark. I want to thank you very much for taking your time to talk to us and to share your incredible story and your ideas. I want to also congratulate you on the book that's coming out in January, So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family, Depression, and Resilience. I saw the book cover, looks great, and I'm sure it's going to be very informative for a lot of people. Mark, before we part, if there was one message that you could share with everyone out there who's feeling anxious, depressed, and hopeless, what message would that be to those out there who need it right now? And that's just about everybody. You know, I, I hope that this doesn't sound too pithy or too kind of meme-worthy, but I think that everybody needs to realize that they are, that you are worthy of love, of respect, of validation that you are not less than anybody else. And if there's one thing that your depression wants you to believe, uh, and your depression speaks to you in your own voice, that's why it can be so hard sometimes to, to distinguish between the two, your true voice and that of your depression. It wants you to think that you're worthless, uh, that you can't do what you wanna do, that nobody loves you, and that is not true. That your depression is a liar, it does not want you to be happy, but you can fight back, and it's so worth it. Once you're able to get past that depth of that despair and darkness of whatever your struggle is, once you really do feel deep in your soul that gratitude for your life, there's really no going back from when you get to the top of that mountaintop. So if you're not there yet, you will get there. Uh, be patient. Rely on the network of people like me and so many others I've discovered who have been there too. Uh, to help support you. Thank you. That is wonderful. That's a great message because we cannot become a hostage to our depression. Mark, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And I'm, uh, I'm a little emotional right now just listening to you. This has uh, touched me in, in many, many ways, and I'm sure that it's going to touch many of my, my listeners. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for doing the show. Good luck with it. It's, it's a, a great idea, and you're a perfect person to be hosting it. Ah, thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 